The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, unhook your Mountain Dew IV and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 249 with guests Chris Sells and Don Box. Recorded live Thursday, June 21st, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now, bring the VB.NET Masterclass on-site to your development team. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who asks the question, if calm is love... What the heck is .NET? Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. I'm here in New London, Connecticut, and uh, Richard Campbell, of course, every week in Vancouver, British Columbia. Hey, Mr. Campbell. And it turns out I was in Vancouver, British Columbia all of last week, too. Even though we told everyone I was going to be in Pakistan, something went terribly wrong. Well, and you know, you just missed the storm of the century in Karachi, apparently. Oh, yeah. I missed out on – I think Steve made it. Steve Forte went there, but he left just before it happened. Yeah, it's pretty bad. I guess some people died, I think. Well, it doesn't rain much there, surprisingly, where they, considering where they are. But, uh, yeah, a hurricane basically blew up into the area. Whoosh. Oh, what wow. call a typhoon. And, uh, yeah, a lot of rain and – um, I don't know if we have a few listeners out in Pakistan, and my heart goes out to anyone who's uh, suffered from this. But definitely, and I'm sorry I couldn't have been there. I really was looking forward to it. But uh, visas sometimes go awry, and that's that's all you can say about it, really. Yeah, what can you do? See you next year. Yep, definitely. So, Richard, uh, let's just get right into it with a little bit we call "Better Know Framework." And the Better Know Framework class for this uh, for this show is one that we've talked about on the show before. But, you know, it, it's one of those classes I thought about whether I should talk about it or not because every once in a while it just comes up in conversation. It's system.text.stringbuilder. And as we learned from Jay Rocks' first appearance on .NET Rocks, he Way actually – Way back when. Yep. Jay actually had something to do with it. He worked on the string object and the string builder object. 
the reason we need a string builder is because strings are reference types, but they're immutable reference types, meaning when you assign a string to a new value, uh, it destroys the original value and creates a new value. So it doesn't, it's not just like a buffer in memory. So the string object, as it turns out, uh, performs well with small amounts of data, but with large amounts of data, not so well. So the string builder has some uh, stuff that they do, this magic in the, in the background, so that you can just keep appending values to it uh, to, to append long strings or take pieces out of big strings. Uh, anytime you're assembling a large string... Especially uh, when you build it in a loop or something like that. Exactly. Right. And if you do this little test, put a... Put a do a like a for next loop for i equals one to a thousand. Uh, let's say ten thousand, and just append i to a string. And if you do that, it'll take a you know maybe a second or two seconds depending on the the the, uh, uh, the speed of your processor. Now add a zero, a hundred thousand, and it'll take an inordinate amount of time, and you'll end up actually having to kill it. Because what happens is a string gets big, the garbage collector starts looking around. I mean, it's taking up an awful lot of memory. It's not doing very uh, efficient things with that string data. But if you substitute that for a string builder, and you create a string builder, and you just append with the append method, uh, you're, it's going to be in the order of milliseconds versus you know a, a long amount of time. So you can see that dramatic result there. System.text.stringbuilder for manipulating large strings. It's one of the, and you know, it's funny, it's always been there. It's something from the very beginning of the .NET framework. And yet, as I see new people started to use the framework for the first time, they don't realize they should be using it. That's right. All right, Richard, you got an email for us? I do indeed, sir. And let me start it off with the classic style, Carl and Richard, comma. <laughs> classic style. I it's like a classic it. style. Yeah. I'm a longtime listener of .NET Rocks, and I'm the lone gunman of IT at my work. But I've oh. got a few friends in the industry, one of which is a huge Java fan. Huh. We both subscribe to a web service that only allows one user to connect at a time, which I find amazing. He took approximately six weeks, and it required the services of a Linux Apache consultant to put together his implementation. So he warned me ahead of time how rough it would be for me since I was using .NET especially when I told him my theoretical implementation. Ah. ASP Ajax enabled web page that would be used to talk to the Windows service that would handle the web service requests and store the resulting data set in SQL Server, which the ASP.NET pages would then pull back up. Uh -huh. From his point of view, this was going to take me at least three months in the .NET space and weeks of testing. Hmm. Needless to say, he was amazed when I had everything built in Three days. Ba-boom. I took a little time to test and release the product to my clients a couple of days after that. Thank you, test-driven development. Yes, sir. I walked my friend through the whole project step-by-step step, and the tools that were used, and I'm pleased to announce to the world that another .NET convert has been made, and he's a new listener to .NET Rocks. All right. Welcome. Well, anyway, I'd let you know what a great job .NET does and what, what a great job .NET Rocks does. So, hey, how about some swag? Yeah, how about some swag? And that's Phil DeVoe. Thank you, Phil. Phil, I think we'll send you a .NET Rocks mug for that. Uh, send him two because he got a new listener, too. Of course. What a great idea. Silly me. <laughs>
hey, the Code Camp thing uh, that we've been doing here is people really beginning to like it. I mean, we're beginning to get a lot more Code Camps to, to, to list. Yes, we're getting really a lengthy list of Code Camps. And I know some folks have not been that thrilled with us reading the same Code Camps week after week. And with the length of the list today, I think uh, I get the point. Right. So we have four new ones to add today. We're only from this point on. We're only going to read new ones that we add to the list, and we're going to maintain that list on the website, which uh, should be up there sometime this week. Right. So you can always go to the .NET Rocks website at .NET Rocks .com to see all the code camps. And every time we get a new one, we'll let you know. And let's kick off the code camp music, and we got four new ones to announce. First off, the Tampa Code Camp, July 14th, which you can check out at shrinkster.com slash QAB. And on July 28th, the Oklahoma City Code Camp at shrinkster.com slash QAC. On August 25th, the Houston Tech Fest, shrinkster.com slash QAD. And finally, all the way down in October, October 19th and 20th, the Tulsa Tech Fest, and that's at shrinkster.com slash QAE. And of course, Greg Brill is, uh, well, he's got some really interesting ideas cooking up now, Richard. Just no wait kidding. Till, yeah, just wait till we talk about this offline. Um, it's going to be some really crazy things, but he needs more people. More and, people. Yeah, and he's sucking up .NET developers, junior developers now even, that he's got in, in training programs. Uh, anyone who's interested in living and working in New York City and living rent-free for a year. Uh, if you're interested in that job offer, go to shrinkster.com slash kh6. All right, let's uh, introduce our guests, Richard. Uh, both have been previous guests on this particular show. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about Chris Sells and Don Box from Microsoft. Uh, hi, guys. Hello. Hi. You two need no introduction, but, uh, you know, all you got to do is is go to windowslive.com and enter your names and you'll get a plethora of information about you guys. Uh, Chris, you work at Microsoft in the Connected Systems Division. Am I As right? As does Don. As does Don. And you both are just constantly working on new and great things to make developers' lives easier. So what have you been up to since the last time we spoke? I'll just leave that know. as an open-ended question for either of you to take on. Uh, when was the last time we spoke? La well, the last time you and I spoke uh, was recently, but on the show we were pro we were talking a little bit about what our topic is now, which is just learning in general. Um, but, I mean, we didn't really particularly talk about book learning or paper learning, but we were talking about learning and teaching. And uh, if I recall correctly, it was about how some of the biggest epiphanies happen as you are speaking in mid-sentence. Uh, yes. Well, when talking to a class. Yes, I remember we uh, we were talking about, and in fact, I've been having this conversation with Don a lot lately, and with publishers in general. That um, just the state of the book market seems very different, and it has changed very significantly over the last ten years since since I entered it. And um, I just put. Uh, one another book to bed, and I don't have any plans for writing a new one. And I mean, I love I love the writing process because it's a wonderful way to learn. And in fact, I that's how I learn things is writing them down. That's how I make sense of my life. That's why I write a blog is is so that I can understand things that happen to me. Um, but I I am no longer convinced that 
books are the way to package information. Well, is it fair to say that publishers have begun to get a little less picky about who they hire and contract with to write a book these days? No, they've been unpicky for a very long time. That is not recent phenomena. I, be- I believe the criteria then and now is author has a pulse. Hmm. That's always seemed to be what it was for me. And in fact, you know, the first time I wrote a book, it, I sent, uh, I wrote a proposal and sent it to three publishers, expecting maybe one to say, eh, maybe. And all three got into a bidding war. And it was just ridiculous because I was a nobody w- w- with no writing experience. Yeah, I, I actually would say, if anything, it's harder to get a book contract now simply because back in the, the, you know, the heyday of the 90s, you know, every publisher had like you know, two, three, five books on any given topic. So there was a lot of room for people to step up and become book authors. Now, whether they became successful at it or not is another story. Hmm. Now the market has shrunk so much in terms of the actual volume of, volume of books sold Demand there is, is actually less opportunity now than there was before. And it's the demand is lower, obviously, not that the supply is greater. Yeah, demand is down, so supply uh, is shrinking as well, which and means it, you need less authors. And, of course, there's, there's a really good reason that demand is shrinking. Um, and that's because we have this wonderful, good enough information resource known as the Internet. Yeah, it's... It, it's, I would say there's two phenomena on the Internet specifically that kind of obviate the need, uh, some of the need for books. One is the, the, the quality of search. I mean, we all know that there's many high-quality search engines. Yes, both um, of them. And, yes. <laughs> and uh, the second one is actually the, the, the emergence of people, actually, the, the ease with which people can publish content now. I mean, back right. in the 90s, you know, you need an FTP account to a server to upload some HTML, now with you know all of these content blogging engines, um, it's much easier for somebody to get into the publication on the internet game, and that's strictly goodness. And there are still people though that publish eBooks. Remember the eBook phenomena, although only, not as many. I I must say I don't see a lot of eBooks anymore. The only one I ever talked to in real life who ever did that and had any amount of success was Dan Appleman. I was just going to mention Dan, and apparently the he said it was just a. Uh, a really ruthless market um, because there's just not the sales and distribution channel that there is for regular books. I mean, regular books make it onto your your local bookshelves because publishers have armies of salesmen that take their catalogs of upcoming publications to all of the chains and the you know the 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 bigger, well-known um, uh, you know mom and pop stores and and actively sell and. You don't have that. Well, the, the reason Dan was, I think, moderately successful was is a fair characterization is because he had so many marketing vehicles already set up, right? I mean, for all his consulting and software sales, he just piggybacked his book, uh, his ebook sales onto that. Right. Well, he's Dan Appleman. He's so well known. Uh, you know, it's almost a reflex to buy an ebook from Dan. Well, and he's also been so generous with information. I mean, you'd feel like killing yourself if you were to like copy and steal his material and pass it on you know publish it on on your website we accept i mean i've found major portions of both books and blog content published on foreign websites 
Oh, well, you know, speaking of that, somebody sent me a link once because my book was among them, or my internet programming book. Every book that has ever been written is available on some website in China somewhere in PDF <laughs> form. Yeah. That's a pretty bold statement. Every book that's ever been written. I swear to God, there are millions of books on this list. <laughs> the list went on and on and on. It was, it was maybe a slight exaggeration. but. So do you have a tiny Earl? <laughs> no, I, I, I got rid of it. I didn't oh, even okay. want to know it. Well, I figured if he deleted his uh, reference to it, then nobody else would ever go there. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Doesn't, isn't that how it works? So uh, and it, it, this isn't just uh, a problem that's localized to books. Magazines have been feeling the crunch from blogs and everything, uh, technical magazines specifically, which is what we're talking about. And, uh, you do know, the big magazines, magazines, they still do, and they're still available, but they're certainly not considered the profit centers that they once were. Well, because, you know, I go to Barnes & Noble and Borders, which are kind of the two local bookstores, and if I go to the computer magazines, it's mainly game magazines at this right. point. Right, right. That's um, all that's left. Yeah, and I can't remember the last time I bought a programming magazine. In fact, I don't even see, is Dobbs still in print? I don't even know. Or are they web only? <laughs> Because, like, I, at Barnes & Noble, I've never seen Dobbs, like, in the last year or two, recent memory. I can't remember even seeing Dobbs. And if Dobbs and Byte are gone, then it's over. You're just done. There, there is nothing else? It's pretty much over then. Well, definitely, even, even the powerhouse in our world, right, MSN Magazine, I can't remember the last time I saw it on a shelf in a bookstore. Yeah, yes, exactly. It, it doesn't get shelf space anymore because they just don't move. Everything is based on subscription. You don't pick it up on the way to the train. And the basic problem is, you know, it's probably 30-day-old content at least. Well, the funny thing is, I mean, there's really no reason to subscribe anymore either because with an RSS feed, you you get it just as soon. It's right. not sooner. But also well, in the I mean, chunk I actually want it in. I go into a book to find three pages of the reference code that I'm looking for. I can find that so much easier on a blog, and I can cut and paste it. Right. So before, I think it was Carl who characterized this as a, a problem, right? It's a problem. Problem that, for the publishers. Yeah, it's a problem <laughs> for the publishers. But, right. you know, is it a problem for the developers? No, I certainly don't think so. You don't see any downside. Um, you know, I was for me personally, I can't say for all developers, but I was never one who went to a book for code. Um, well, I'm uh, with you, but do you go to a book? Have you ever gone to a book for anything else? Do you of still course, go to a book no, for no. Uh, the, but the books I tend to read now are more like Code Complete. They're more like uh, you know the, the the more philosophical books or the more uh, you know knowledge or wisdom books you might want to call them. So have, not have specifically you... technical books. Have you abandoned technology-specific books altogether? Well, first of all, I'm not the uh, I'm not the best candidate for this question because m much of my work has to do with audio now, as opposed to development for other people. So I'm not your your typical contract programmer. So well, the reason I well I ask that is because I found that a bunch of the programmers that I have contact with have largely abandoned books and magazines as even on the list of possible places to get information. Not a place wow. they're going to look. I mean, it's funny because, Don, I don't know how you do it, but if I dig into a new technology, I'll go to the bookstore and buy you know, three or four of the books on that topic. And then I'll read them in a week or two 
and I'll probably put them on shelf and never pick them up again. And then my, the Internet is my reference from then on. But I use it to pick up the Zen. Yeah, I certainly only look to books for Zen. Um, and it depends. I mean, often, if it's a technology, I usually don't even bother to buy a book at this point. Um, I've, you know, the WPF thing is kind of interesting. You know, I own now every WPF book ever written, but it's only because, you know, two of my best friends wrote some, and you know, <laughs> there's all this controversy, so I got to know every one of them if I'm going to, you know, engage in the discussion. But you know, that's an outlier. Um, I, you know, I just don't buy technical books, right? I, um, you know, if it's a technology, I'll pick it up on the internet or I'll go talk to people. Um, if it's you know, if it's a field like you know knowledge representation, yes, I'll absolutely spelunk the canon and pick up you know everything I possibly can. And yes, I read it and get the osmosis and get the Zen. Um, but I never go back to it. Right, right? exactly right. You never go back. Yeah, and that's the, a big the notion difference. of a reference book is an, is just almost nonsensical at this point. And that's basically you know I learned programming from reference books. So I mean, back in those days, that's what you did. Yeah, you didn't the, have tutorial books. You just had the the instruction reference for the 6502. Pretty right? much. Or, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's that's what you had. Yeah, I think yeah, I read I'll, the page on indirect indexed addressing a dozen times before it made any sense at all. Yeah. I can't say the same, but I can think of a few others like it that I have It was read. a 6502 thing you wouldn't understand. No, that's... It was the beginning of the Apple inferiority complex right there. <laughs> <laughs> so the question is, I mean, what... So I'm less concerned about the publisher because publishers, um, because I'm not a publisher. But I am an uh, author. I consider myself an author, and I like to write. Am I only to? Should I find a new format for my writing? Well, I mean, blogs have been around for a while, Chris. You have one. Um, you yes, should probably but, know the answer to that question by well, now. Well, I have, and I write. I certainly write my share of blog entries, and and uh, a, a number of them are technical. I find a blog really handy for little short snippets, and not really so great for, I don't know, longer stories. A yeah. chapter. Yeah, yeah. Don, you've 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 abandoned um, book writing altogether, at least for a number of years. Yes. What do you think about all this? Well, look, you know, I have plenty of opportunity to scratch the writing itch. As you know, internally on our team, we actually write, you know, a, a fair amount of prose um, as part of the design and dev process. So in terms of, like, technical narrative and exposition, um, I get a great opportunity to do that internally. And for me, what I'm trying to accomplish now, it's more leverage than me writing a book on some technology that's already been built or on French philosophy, right, which is, you know, kind of the writing of design patterns, Martin Fowler-style book. Um, I just, it would bore me to tears. I just couldn't write it. Um, and writing, like, on Indigo, like, it would have been natural for me to write the Indigo book. Like, Chris Ann wrote the WPF book and Dharma wrote the WF book. But it's like, by the... It's just it, it it's just not all that leverage for me. It's not a great use of my time, and it, I just can't justify doing it. Whereas, the writing I do do is internally focused. And look, when we ship, it'll eventually get morphed into you know the doc set or into a book. But at this point, I'm using writing for other uh, means. It's basically a way for me to focus my own design efforts because uh, there's nothing you know more more uh, 
you know, more embarrassing than having to explain your technical design um, and realizing, oh, my God, the story sucks. And that's usually <laughs> a good indication that the design is flawed. Yeah. Um, so for me, that's what writing serves. In terms of writing a three to 500-page book, God, I hope I never have to do that again. Well, I, you know, one of the major reasons why people do that is to, to have a big resume, right? I mean, nothing says you know your stuff like a published book. Except and, to other b- authors. Right. <laughs> yeah. But you, you can't tell me essential calm didn't have an impact on your career, Don. Oh, sure. Those it was great, but I've done that, though. right? I, I, I don't know that I ever need to do that again. Right. Uh, a good friend of mine, Dan Weston, who we used to work with, wrote you know, a couple of really influential Mac programming books like in the mid-'80s. And he told me, I never have to write another book again. I've written a book. I've gotten over that bar. And even though you know, Mac programming in 68K is you know, a dead, dead, dead art. You know, Apple's gone through two processor changes since then. Right. You know, Dan doesn't feel compelled to write another book. Um, and, you know, in terms of resume building, um, it, it's just not, uh, it's not the most leveraged thing. So writing the first book is a triumph? The first book is, the first book is useful. And how useful it is, I don't know. Like, a great example is Chris Anderson, right, who is a mutual friend of both Chris Sells and I. He didn't need to publish a book to polish his resume, right? He was a lead architect on a major technology um, that's used in Windows. He doesn't need uh, to write a book to to pad his resume. It just yeah. doesn't make sense. So he obviously wanted to get the story done. Yes, but I would have to say, um, I I love the idea that Chris wrote that book simply because having the opportunity to tell that story makes him a better architect on his next project. Oh, I, look! I don't get me wrong. I'm thrilled to death he wrote that book, and you know it is one of my favorite books of the last you know 12 to 24 months. Um, and I believe there was a lot of benefit for him in terms of the catharsis of getting that process done in his own head. Which, and by the, the way, book you're was, talking about is Essential Windows Presentation Foundation. Exactly, and and you know Dharma Shukla and Bob Schmidt wrote a comparable volume for the Workflow Engine, and when Dharma wrote it, he told me like this was his catharsis, right? This was his last chance to get the design and the motivation and the rationale out of his head into some concrete artifact so he could move on. And what's interesting is Chris Anderson no longer works on WPF and Dharma Shukla no longer works on WF, right? And that, those, writing those books was very cathartic for them. So on that front, I can see that it's useful, but neither one of them needed it on their resumes. Yeah. Well, you know, in the days were different back then. I mean, that's what, when I was writing books, that was one of the major reasons why people did is because it did set you apart. But now, the, you know, the market got so flooded with books for a while there that it just, uh, you know, it doesn't make any sense anymore. There seemed to be a point where publishers figured out that they could take 800 pages of anything and a CD and sell about 5,000 copies, yeah. really based on the title and nothing else. Mm-hmm. And and it, and they could also get the finest book known to man, and they'd sell about five thousand copies. Like it really seemed to be very little motivation for quality books. Well, I mean, books books are like anything, right? It's a hit based business. I mean, you have to have a number of. It's about timing and and tone and the right set of topics that people really care about. And if you can strike that chord, then you can have a bestseller. Arguably, obviously. Essential Com was, and you know, uh, several of uh, the the Petzold 
uh, programming Windows 3.1, obviously. I mean, there's several, lots of books that you can hold up, but that's only still only a tiny percentage. Just like your average movie theater, you know, puts shows uh, Shrek 3 in three of their 12 theaters. It's a hit. So are you ready for the big news? Telerik is taking the wraps off four new product updates. Rad controls for ASP.NET, Rad controls for WinForms, the first official version of the Telerik reporting tool, and a brand new suite codenamed Rad Controls Prometheus. And you guys think I don't sleep. Telerik's tools have always been great, but I think this time they've outdone themselves. Well, here are the details. Prometheus is built on top of Microsoft ASP.NET Ajax, and it'll become the successor of Rad Controls for ASP.NET. Just as ASP.NET Ajax will be the future of ASP.NET, Rad Controls Prometheus represents the future direction of all new Telerik development tools. This new suite of controls will also pave the way for seamless integration with Microsoft Silverlight, formerly WPFE. The WinForm suite aims for the stars with powerful new grid, chart, and tree view controls. For me, it seems like a major player on the WinForms market. Another intriguing addition to Telerik's portfolio this spring is Telerik Reporting. The product introduces a new level of development experience, which Telerik collectively calls easeability, a naturally intuitive mouse-only approach to generating Windows, Web, and PDF reports. And if that's not enough, go to www.telerik.com to check out what's new with Telerik's renowned RAD controls for ASP.NET. Let's talk about the monetary aspect of this. Obviously, somebody's going to sit down and write you know, a long story. They're going to want to be compensated for their time. Then there are a number of people who make their living off blogging, not just in our industry, but in many industries. Do Is they really? The, I mean, from the ads? Yes. Uh, there, I, outside of the .NET world, there are lots of people who blog about, you know, politics and everything else that make their living off of the revenue they get from ads, Google AdSense, whatever, uh, that, that get placed on their blog and in their feeds. And do they only make their living from the ads, or do I, they make I, their living from I hear ads? Stories and... all, yeah, I hear stories all the time, people who blog for a living. Wow. But I think it's also almost mythical, you know, that, that you would make a breakthrough. And, it, and they, so, I mean, getting back to the issue here, does anybody make a living off of technical book writing? Yes, yeah, Charles Petzold. Charles Petzold has stated, this is yep. how I make my living. And I know there are a few other people in that, that equivalence class. Well, I always thought Petzold to... made a living off of being Charles Petzold. Yeah. No, yeah, I, the look, money I, just I comes think, to him. Yeah. I, I don't think Charles makes a lot of money like on the speaking circuit. I mean, when Chris and I were you know, in, you know, prior to Microsoft, we made, well, I'll speak for myself, I made a crap load more um, speaking than I did writing. Yeah, I right. mean, it was it was speaking and consulting and even training was much more lucrative than writing. But writing, you know, it was a 600-page resume, right? And it facilitates all of that it other stuff. It was an enabler. Yeah. Yep. And arguably, the, for the the developer on the go, right, the, the hired gun guy, the blog is today's equivalent of the book. Right. Yes. I mean, I don't think Scott Hanselman, if he was an independent consultant, ever needed to write a book. His blog would speak for itself. Yes. Although he has. And his podcast. Yeah. But that's all part of his blog, right? Sure. I mean, it's all online content for his website. Yeah. 
Well, so it's a good – it's not necessarily a good story for publishers, but uh, it's a good story for developers and certainly a good story for anybody who likes to write. Um, you may not make a lot of money at it, but uh, all right. There's that issue. Is there anything else to say about this? Uh, well, here's the interesting thing. I mean, is it really the case, right? If – I mean, we have this problem with, with um, uh, TiVo, right? If TiVo lets you let's, – if everyone had a TiVo and nobody watched commercials, we couldn't have television because it's the advertisers that pay for television programs. That's right. Right. So similarly, if everyone writes a blog and no one writes a book, does – I mean, when's the last time you – is it the case that the zen of a technology is available on the web? Rarely. Well, yeah. I don't find the zen of a technology on the web. And maybe it's the format. Maybe it's because, you know, I, when I, I'm only able to attain the Zen when, I, when I'm unplugged. I think that's it. I think that, that there's more distractions when you use your PC than when you're sitting on the, in a chair reading a book. It just seems to me that's the case. So for every piece of writing, I have a test. Um, that I apply to it, and that's how I decide whether it's a good piece of writing or not. And I call it the bathtub test. And the bathtub test is whether a piece of writing gives me all of what I want to know as I'm reading it, right? Does it show me the, the right snippets of code? Does it show me the right output? Does it show me the file formats? Does it connect the dots for me in a way that I can get sitting in the bathtub, reading that piece of writing without typing the program in, running it to see what the output is, searching on the web to get more information. Right. Does it answer your and anticipate and answer your questions? Yes, exactly okay. right. And I would consider that the zen. Um, and so by definition, right, anything that only is available on my laptop doesn't pass the bathtub test because, you know, I would might drop it. <laughs> <laughs> Although, Chris, you, you talked about people don't get zen off the Internet. I think I'm, I'm, I'm I'm only asking, right? Do well, I, 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 was, I was actually kind of swapping in, like, what have I gotten Zen off of uh-huh. the, the Internet from? Look, I would actually argue Ruby on Rails, most of the Zen communicated to the world has not been on books. Right? Well, certainly I don't get the Rails Zen from reading any of the books I got. I never have been able to get the Rails Zen from the books. I did at the conference, though. Yes, but I also believe, I, I mean, I picked up Ruby and Ruby on Rails from reading web content. And that's where you got it. Yeah. So what you're I saying picked it is, up from listening to podcasts, actually. I can't listen to podcasts. I'm not patient enough. Can't stand them. Cannot stand them. And I know I'm actually, you know, speaking into a <laughs> microphone that's going to be played back to other people. I will never listen to this. Well, I mean, I, I learned it actually by recording Hansel Minutes with Scott. That's the first exposure I had to Ruby uh, in Ruby on Rails. So it's funny. So Scott is definitely the only podcast I listen to. Um, and I, right. I do it because uh, I do it when I'm, like, uh, mowing the lawn or doing the dishes, right? I need something to entertain me. Don't they have NPR in Portland? <laughs> they, <laughs> they do, but um, my phone doesn't have an FM uh, radio on it, so I'm stuck with MP3s. You know, Zoom has FM receiver in it. Does it really? That sounds really cool. And they have pink Zooms in the uh, company store right now. Pink Zooms? Awesome. Yeah. Chris, there's also the issue that all NPR content is is uh, podcast. No, available. I understand. I could download that, too. And, of course, I yeah. do also get that stuff all through uh, my media center. 
Yeah. On the way back from Montreal last week, Gretchen and I listened to nothing but NPR content and a few Mondays uh, for about seven hours off the iPod in the wow. car. Great yeah. stuff. So the, that's the beauty, right? I mean, the beauty of this global communication and distribution mechanism is that authors are publishers. Yeah. Right? We don't need the middleman anymore. And, and that, always, that does what always happens, right? It, it sucks all the money out of the system. Well, the middleman is the publicist, the Google, you know, the, 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 the devices by which you get people to yeah. your website. Yeah, the search engine, sure. There is no substitute for that. You still have to get people there. And I, I have this conversation with customers about podcasting, too, because they think if they do a podcast, people will listen to it. Right. Just like they thought if they built a website, people would go to it right. and buy their stuff or whatever. So. Yeah, I'm I'm hanging on to the Zen of technologies and thinking of uh, my first thought when I thought I get the Zen of a technology from a book is, wow, I didn't know Zen took so long. <laughs> These books are so big. Yeah. But uh, but then I also think, yeah, I can really see where a, a technology focused conference like a Ruby on Rails conference would be the one of the great places to get the Zen of a technology. Well, it was funny, too, because I went to the Rails conf and. They did, it's not like they had the – well, they did have the tutorial sessions, but I was too full of myself to go to those. That's a whole hour and 15 minutes of your life. You can't <laughs> well, listen to a podcast. <laughs> well, it was, a whole, you know, it was a whole day, right, of tutorials. <laughs> but it was funny. I was able to get to the Zen by going to all these talks, which all had an assumption at the center of them. Right? They were all building on a set of core assumptions. And just listening to a variety of talks, I was able to – kind of reverse engineer what would have been said at the tutorial. Right? And that, that assumption being that you're familiar with the technology. Well, I, I'm only pass, I was only passingly familiar with Rails. Well, I was, yeah, but I, I was thinking that's what their assumption was. Yeah, they assume they're, They uh, think they they're talking that. to yeah. that. Yeah. But it, and it makes sense to me that that would be the Zen. I mean, the worst way to get a Zen is for having somebody say, let me start at the beginning. I don't know. I mean, think of the first chapter of Essential Comp. That's probably the the best example of of technology zen that i can think of well you know what strikes me is as kind of interesting uh don you say you don't have the patience for a, uh to listen to podcasts is that because the quality is bad or is it because uh a half an hour of your time to determine whether or not you get the zen is not worth the investment um it's certainly the latter um you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a pretty efficient reader, and I, I find I can plow through prose pretty quickly. Um, and having to listen uh, to, to the spoken word is just so inefficient that um, it's pretty tough to sit through. What about uh, the 1.5 speed on? E- even with 1.5 speed. Wow. Um, but you could actually get it faster from a book. Absolutely. I, actually, the best is online. Book is actually also okay, uh, mainly because I've got, you know, 44 years. Well, I wasn't reading as a baby, but, you know, I started reading probably around <laughs> six or seven. So, you know, well, 35 maybe to 40 years worth of experience plowing through books. Um, you know, I kind of know how to do that at this point in my life. Um, but, yeah, that, definitely the written word is so much better than the spoken word for me. I, I think the power of the online part is being able to control those digressions, go in different directions. The book enforces an order. Oh, but I, it turns out that the pages uh, support random access. Um, 
It's not a streaming content. You actually can um, skip whole sections of books and get to the piece you want. I do like that about reading. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we could argue about the quality of indices in books or uh, how books are organized. But, I mean, in general, you know, the, the, you just get used to it. And uh, the other thing is, is look, I, I just don't have a lot of time to consume content in general. Yeah. Um, you know, WPF's different because, again, I got a couple friends who wrote books, and I care about the quality of those books, and then this whole Petzold thing came up. So that's a, that's a very different situation. But in general, um, I find I basically come to work, work on stuff, write programs, spelunk things in, in Let's, Let's' uh, Reflector. Um, and actually, I get most of my content in Reflector because um, I'm basically just Great spelunking tool. technologies I'm using or I'm building. And I, like, I even read my own product source code by going through Reflector and disassembling it. I find it to be the single most efficient way for me to grok things. And you don't have time for podcasts? Oh, man. Yeah, and so and <laughs> I got news for you. As soon as I leave here, right, I'm not listening to technical content. I've had right. enough. You know, I've had a full, you know, 8 to 12-hour day, and I'm kind of done. And if, sure. You're full. Yeah, I, I, I don't desire anymore. And, of course, you know, I basically go home, spend time with my family. After my family goes to bed, three nights a week, maybe I'm going to do techie stuff, but I got news for you. If I get that kind of chunk of time by myself, I'm producing, not consuming. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, the other thing that I picked up on that you said is I come to work, blah, 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 blah. I go home, blah, blah, blah. Well, in those two uh, sentences, there might be an hour and a half for most people. So there's a lot of time that they sit around looking out the window and wondering, you know, you know, why am I listening to this same old oldie station? Well, that's why they have NPR. Right. I agree, man. I listen to nothing but NPR in my car. I don't listen to other podcasts mostly, except if I'm going on a long trip, like I said before. But but I love NPR. Yeah, I mean, and my commute's pretty uh, pretty tame, so I, right. I don't actually have that much free time to yeah. That was uh, my point. In the car. But you're right. For some people, it's hellacious. Yep. Don't understand the commute. I have a tough enough time getting down the stairs. <laughs> That's your commute. <laughs> so it's funny too when. I know that Don does, you know, he spends his, his evenings and weekends producing, but it's not all technical. I mean, he, he plays his uh, his bass lately, and uh, when I'm over there, he serenades me, which is nice. And, uh, you know, I know he's he's got a life. I'm, I'm is, forming a semblance of a life. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I'll tell you, I mean, putting this uh, book to bed has been wonderful for me because I think I signed this my last book contract about four years ago, and I haven't had any uh, felt any need to sign another one, except um, uh, I started a novel over the weekend, and really? man, I'm I'm going to try uh, producing something in that vein and see what I feel about that. Wow. Well, it's not like you can't not write. Yes. Well, that's the problem, right? I can't not write. I have to write something. And are any are, are any of the characters based on people I know, Chris? Well, actually, it... Uh, there are three um, of your personalities, Don. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I'd have to say that um, the, the heroes are definitely geeks in this book, yes. That's fair. Interesting. So we're not going to hear any more about this, are we? I'm are, you write it on? <laughs> are you asking him? No, are you no, going to I... publish the book under your own name, Chris? Uh, that's the current plan. Are you worried? <laughs> no, I just I just want to know if I'm if I if if I will actually be able to recognize the book in a bookstore. Whether 
I should start buying, you know, kind of techno fiction in about a year, kind of in hopes of figuring out which one is the sales book. My guess is you'll read it before I publish it. How about that? Except for, you know, come to think of it, you don't read that kind of thing. You're more, Barb's more likely to read it than you are. Oh, I don't know. I would read yours, of course. Well, what kind of thing? Is this sci-fi? No, heavens no. Fantasy? Dude, the last book I wrote, the last book I read was completely non-technical. What was it? Uh, it was Rickles' book. Oh, really? Don well, Rickles. Yeah, but you, yeah, but you read, um, you read nonfiction when you, I mean, you, you either you read that or you read conspiracy theory books, right? You don't read fiction. Yeah, I got Freemasonry for Dummies, which was just fantastic. Is it really? <laughs> that book actually exists. You can oh. actually buy it. Wow. Well, and of course, you know, we both uh, read and, and loved uh, the game. The right? game was great. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. You got to do me a favor, though. You got to go to uh, listen to Benjamin Walker's Theory of Everything. If you've never heard any podcasts before that you've liked, try this one out. It's toeradio.org, I think. Uh, good stuff. And conspiracy theories abound. Awesome. Like you wouldn't believe on this well, course, show. Doug Purdy turned me on to uh, the Illuminati trilogy and. Man, that right. sucked up a lot of my time when I was supposed to be writing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Illuminatus. That's a good. That's a good fun read. Yeah. So how do we get Three on Masons this? for dummies? How did we get yeah, here? How do we get on this topic? <laughs> so it's all about. You guys are right. I mean, you work hard. Uh, you know, in doing the Microsoft thing. When you go home, you got family. You have a life. Um, I think a lot of, you know, young, ambitious developers today are, uh, are not necessarily where we are. We're sort of like the old timers of this business. Yeah, yeah. You I mean, know? they won't think to write a book. They, the, I think guys like us will just die or get lives, <laughs> right? We'll, we'll be lazy and we'll, we'll stop writing books. And the new guys that come along or gals, um, won't think to write a book. They'll just crank up a blog crank up a blog and that's how we've been introduced to to a lot of uh guests on the show that have been very successful on the show is just by reading their blogs hey you want to talk about this uh, although uh, i gotta say chris i think there's a far better way to kind of break out of the pack and i think it's actually produces more value for the planet and it's also more effective if you think about it let's rotor right doesn't blog. I, he may have a blog. I've never seen it, right? And I don't care. But the fact that he actually produced a piece of software that I use every day of my life, um, to me, has a far more profound impact. Um, and I would actually strongly encourage people who are looking to break out to actually produce something of value rather than just become another pundit or another, yeah. you know, kind of tutorial writer. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. So there's <laughs> producing and there's producing. And I think what you what you just did was put every piece of prose that we, the two of us, have ever produced into the bin. And I don't think that's fair, right? I think, I think the, the prose we've written, and I, there's a lot of good prose in the world, both in paper and on the web, that is useful and it is by itself breakout content. Now, that's not to say that I don't agree that Reflector is a fabulous piece of software, and I'd like to see more pieces of software of that utility that are that, you know, wonderful. Sure, but if I think about, like, you know, I've got a son who sometimes aspires to be in the business. He may not have the skills. I'm not going to say whether he does or not because I don't really know. He may or may not have the skills to produce 
useful, effective pros. But he may, in fact, have lots of skills for building, you know, the next reflector. People shouldn't think that the way you have a good career in this industry is by becoming a talking head or a writing head. Um, I actually think that's a, a pretty false uh, expectation. Um, you know, yes, Chris, many of the things you have writ have been, written have been great. I've learned tons from reading stuff you've written. Um, but there's a lot of crap. And, well, know, most of it's crap. But to be fair, most software is crap, too. Uh, so I think that's what Don's maybe. saying. Don't write crap. Write something good. And what I'm <laughs> saying is that applies whether you write executable code right. or whether you write code that is meant to be consumed. Don just you know, loves Reflector, pros. which is, you know, that's a great well, piece of software. Of course. Of course it is. Yeah. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Developer Express. Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. So, bass serenades, Don. Now, that I have not heard of. Do you just sit around and play bass, or do you actually play guitar or another melodic instrument that uh, is I, I play polyphonic? mainly bass. Um, I picked up a, a double bass violin um, in August of last year. Wow. And so I'm trying to uh, get good at that. Um, so I'm obviously practicing every day. Um, Chris, you know, when he stays at my house, which is once a month, um, definitely uh, gets to suffer through um, my playing. He... Fortunately, I stopped trying to play with a bow, which is the thing that's really excruciating to listen to. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I play pretty much only pizzicato now because I'm a jazzer, so it's it's uh, it's probably not so bad. But then there's always that one song I make you play whenever I stay over. Yes, if I have a bass in my hand, Chris makes me play the theme for Barney Miller. All right. You play it in F? <laughs> do you play it in F like the original, or do you drop it down? That, that's the only key to play. Well, of course. <laughs> Yeah, musicians are so weird. That is an awesome theme song. I mean, you know, they don't make theme songs like that anymore. <laughs> That's because well, that guy's funny. dead. So it's funny, too, because, um, you know, I, I played uh, the trumpet all through high school in a marching band and jazz band and that whole thing. And I've missed music since then. So um, I started taking piano lessons. I read that. And that must be a heck of a jump, really. You know, different way of moving the fingers. And, oh, uh, very different. And in fact, what I learned was, what I've discovered about myself is that um, I used to think I could read music, and what that really meant was I could look at a note and translate it into my finger movements on my uh, trumpet, but I right. long ago lost what the names of those notes were. Yeah. So that means I'm relearning to read music all over again in terms of notes and finger positions. Yeah. Yeah, you can't do, can't do the mechanical thing. No, exactly right. So when are you going to be able to play the trumpet part for the Barney Miller theme? <laughs> I, the trumpet part probably wouldn't be hard at all. All I'd need is the music. Well, all right. But the piano part. You know, much has been said, and I hear it every day, you know, musicians, computer programmers, they have this common bond, or many seem to be both, you know. And oh, uh, I, I think what I think what I'm getting out of it these days, and you know, everybody tries to explain this, and I've explained it to death on this show. But the thing I'm getting it out of these days is that the computer is so abstract. Yes, it's yet it's so like precise, and music is abstract, but it's an expression of the soul. It's like completely separate. 
I think, but in the other direction. But you programming is an expression of the soul? I think programming is an expression of the intellect. No way. Interesting. I don't know. And, and of course, you know, even technical writing is absolutely an expression of the soul. I mean, and when I think about music, I think about jazz improv because that to me is the highest form to me it, because it's, it's, it's on the edge of thought. It's not thought. You know, you practice – when you practice your thinking, when you're playing, you're just playing. I, I don't know. To me, the only difference between playing music and programming is the fact that music is in real time. Right, I can stop and think as I'm a programming as I'm programming, and there's no tempo that I have to worry about. I'm um, in music; it's basically real time math. Well, unless you're programming MIDI scores or whatever, in which case it sounds like programming, right? Sure. Yeah, I don't know. You know what I'm observing though? We're not talking about our work, Chris. <laughs> this 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 whole show has kind of. Uh, uh, deteriorated into a what are the personal lives of Chris and Don as if that actually matters at all to the world oh I, I think that you have a lot more fans than you think you do yeah but you know for what it's worth Chris and I actually have jobs we actually are working very hard to produce um, a you know piece of software for Microsoft that people will actually use and hopefully people will like it as much as Reflector as we like Reflector yeah all right, well, yeah. let's talk about what you're working on these No, days. we can't. That's why we're having to have to <laughs> It was just an observation, not a recommendation for a remedy. No, it's just like, you know, if we were doing the show in 6 to 12 months, it would be a very different show. Let's go back uh, to talking about bass playing then. No, I don't think we talk about that much at all then. Uh, but remember, right, the topic of the conversation was the state of the developer education market, right? I mean, we... I we think had we sort of put that one to bed. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, we did. We we said that publishers are screwed. I believe is the uh, summary <laughs> pretty of that. Much. That, was, pretty much. that was the technical term. Well, and and twelve books in twelve years, which at some point I'm thinking you weren't learning. Like, yeah, why did you, tell me about why it. did you keep writing them? Well, I, the only reason to write for anything, right, whether it's a blog entry or a piece of code or or a book is because you can't not, right? You right. got it's an expression of the soul. And uh that's why I kept plus, you know, apparently it turns out writing my signature on the bottom of book contracts is also an expression of the soul and I couldn't stop myself. <laughs> so what are you telling me? After twelve years and twelve books, your soul's empty and you're not gonna do it again? <laughs> no, it's just uh it's it's that it doesn't seem that the medium appreciates the efforts anymore. Oh, okay. Right, that I, that's, that, so I have things I want to say, but not in that medium anymore. So then the question is, what is the medium? And I just don't think it's the blog. I don't know. I mean, it's the blogs by definition, my definition, don't pass the bathtub test. Right. Maybe, maybe it's the USB controlled lava lamp. Maybe that's the. I, mean, I was right. thinking about USB ports in the head when uh, right. when Dom was complaining about the speed of learning. Well, I'm, I'm finding one of my favorite um, uh, venues for, for teaching, and I get a lot of opportunities uh, kind of one-on-one, is just discussion, right? Somebody will come to me and say, how does this work? And that's my favorite form of teaching, assuming right. I know the answer. 
if I don't, it's a lot less satisfying. Uh, and and I and I immediately envision a whiteboard in the equation. Oh, absolutely! You can't think without a marker in your hand. Oh yeah, uh, that was one of my one of my basic tenets as a consultant was Monday morning, the first half of the first day at a minimum, no computers at all. Get in a white, get on the whiteboards, draw out for me what you're doing. Because if you don't, if you don't know how, if you can't, how the heck can you build it? Sure. Yep, you need the uh, the giant cocktail napkin, or else you can't get any work done. Yeah, that's the that is the basic measure, and it, and and an interesting way to learn. It's just not terribly efficient. It's I think it's effective, but not efficient. Doesn't scale, right? Uh huh. That's strange, Chris. You know, I never use a whiteboard, or I very rarely use one. But I use a text editor all the time. Emacs, sure. right? No matter what I'm doing, I've got a text editor open. Whether I'm taking notes or just sketching out ideas, or giving a talk. Out. Yeah, we're actually giving a talk. Yeah, that PowerPoint thing's highly overrated too, but that's another story. You know, let, let's talk a little bit about, uh, in the context of teaching, uh, something you guys know a little bit about, egos. Your, your ego is, is, a, is a weird thing to a programmer and a programmer teacher. As a developer, I find you have to sort of, you know, if we're talking about pride anyway, you sort of have to kill that. You sort of have to think, ah, you can't think, well, that's good enough because I wrote it. You know, therefore, it's done, and nobody shall question it. Uh, <laughs> you cannot think that way or else you're, you're done. But when you teach, you get up in front of a crowd. Man, if, if you're not confident, if you're not proud, if you're not sure of yourself, you're, you're just like you're, – you're not going to be effective at all, and people will walk out of the room. Well, I, I actually wonder about what you just said about let, – let's do the first one, uh, which is, as a programmer, what role does pride play? Look, I think that certainly you can't think that, you know, your code is divinely inspired. is <laughs> automatically great. However, look, I think if you don't try to take pride in your work, that's kind of – you know, that's a sad place to be. Um, you know, if oh, I look sure. back at Indigo um, – you know, there are things I look at it that I'm kind of proud of. I was happy that we did these things. There's a lot of things I look at and say, oh, my God, we were so stupid. We'd do it so differently now. I'm um, thinking of something certain... totally different, actually. I'm, I'm not thinking about taking pride in your work. I'm thinking as you're working and you're, you're, you're developing something a certain way, you know, you have to be ruthless in, in testing your own assumptions, I guess what yeah. I'm trying to say. But you also have to be ruthless if you're doing public speaking. Sure. Right? I certainly know that um, I was always cognizant that anything I said um, would come back to me in print, right? right? That I would say something, someone would then, you know, write about it or, you know, um, you know come back to me and, and, uh, and ask about it. So I was kind of – was very measured with my words. Um, at least I tried to be. I'm sure I slipped <laughs> numerous times. But I always kind of assumed that if I said it – you know, it had to be right, and I had to be able to back it up. And, right. you know, often when you're doing uh, – when you're giving a talk, you know, there will be a Q&A session, and there will be, you know, someone will actually call into question something you said. And um, you really want to be able to back that up. Um, and you want to be able to back it up not by hand-waving and, you know, using, you know, verbal sleights of hand. Because um, there are certainly techniques you, you uh, can use to dodge questions. Only a Nazi would ask that question. Well, and then there's the situation where you may have not considered something. And and not that you were wrong, but 
you know, there's another take to it. So you have to reconsider. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I remember as an instructor having a constantly growing list of ways to say, I don't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is a useful thing to say, too. I mean, sometimes you don't know. Well, of course, but... Um, Immediately after that, I only had one other thing I was would say was, I'm going to find out and get back to you. And right. I did. But there was one talk um, where uh, I was just a monkey, but the, uh, the bits had changed out from under the speaker. So I was typing away, and the final culmination of the demo didn't work. And like I say, I wasn't the main speaker, but and, and we figured it out. Ten minutes after the talk was over. Oh. But I wanted to go to each and every one of those people's houses and tell them. (laughs) Right. This is the thing that we didn't know at the time. Even though, like I say, it wasn't my talk. I was just a monkey. I felt so bad. I still remember that day. There's a little element of obsessiveness there. What do you mean little? (laughs) (laughs) Were we just talking about pride and ego? Do you think you have to be really obsessive to, to do good work in this business? I'd say detail orientation is pretty important, at least for aspects of what we do. Well, it's critical, right? Is there a Most, difference between detail being detail-oriented and being obsessive? Yes, yes um, being detail-oriented has positive connotation. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice way to say obsessed. I guess it all depends on what you obsess on. If you obsess on germs, uh, you know, you're Rory. (laughs) (laughs) But that's all right. There's a place in the world for Rory as well. Yeah. If you obsess on, you know, the spec to uh, whatever technology you're currently learning, you're probably in a good place. But I don't know. I'm just saying, is that a good thing? Um, The things that I find that are useful to obsess on are the public-facing things. So user experience, whether it's uh, against a UI or against an API, uh, we spend endless amounts of time uh, obsessing about in our work. And Don and I have done that for, we just can't help it. But as the, you know, the internal implementation, I mean, we crank those out as quickly as we can and run unit tests against them to make sure they're good enough and performance tests and leak tests that they're good enough and then move on. Because those things are pliable. Those can change and be refactored over time, but the uh, user experience is the thing that people, you know, interact with and they see, and that's the visceral opinion they'll have of your software. They'll never see the implementation. So I gotta know, the stuff you're working on, um, I'm not gonna ask you specifically what it is, but more to what your role is, because both you guys are senior, and do you roll up your sleeves and write code these days? Are you working on specs? What, uh, What level do you work at? We both of us write code most of the day. At least I have been lately, and I know Don has. Actually, Don, I don't know. Are you into the write code mode right now? Uh, this week, yes, I am. Yeah. Um, I've had some, uh, a few other distractions that have kept me from writing code every single day. But um, in the steady state, yeah, I write code every day. But it's also, like you said, a lot of pros. You guys are writing stories about the technologies you're, you're innovating on. Right? I, I think stories might be uh, an overstatement. What, what we try to do on our team is have a certain discipline about the way we do our design work, which is um, we produce effectively three pieces of documentation for everything we do. One is the priors, where we basically document um, kind of the prior art in a given space, 
as well as how our technology, how our solution in that space differs and relates to that work. The second thing we do is we actually write the conceptual overview, right? The, here's how one thinks about this thing we're building, including often, you know, almost tutorial-like content of here's how you write programs against this piece of technology. Then the last thing we write, which by, honestly is the last thing we write because we haven't written much of it, is the actual kind of like API reference material. Um, we were better at that earlier in the project. That's the one where I think we slipped the most. Um, but, you know, the, that writing... Um, kind of goes hand in hand with coding, and you know, I found um, when I was working on uh, the last one of those documents I was working on, I was kind of intermixing. It was like, oh, this part of the story sucks because this design was actually kind of stupid about this thing. Let me go fix the design, and then I'll go write the uh, the solution. My favorite was when I actually just write the way I wish it was, and then go make the bits match the story. I love that style. I think um, there's there's a lot to be said for that. So. So it's the I would say that it's the overview part that to me that's the most important part the overview you have to understand the prior art before you can dive in but the overview is kind of our story which is here's the thing that we're producing that people will interact with and the story is a wonderful way if we can tell a nice uh, story about the thing that people are interacting with we know our design I mean that gives us a measure of quality on our design and if we can't then we do it way before uh, anybody ever interacts with the thing. That's the beauty of the system that we've kind of evolved that I love. You know, you spoke about the APIs being the last thing that you write, the APIs, the SDK. Have you seen the Virtual Earth Interactive SDK or had any part in it? No, nope. I have not. Well, the uh, I just pasted a link to you, Chris, uh, dev.live.com slash virtual earth slash SDK. They did a very nice Ajax-enabled click-around, uh, click-through SDK on the web. Um, and, and it is because it's visual, it's easier to do this way. But uh, really wonderful. I, I wish I had seen more SDKs documented this way. Well, I'll take a look. Well, the upside being, of course, that it's, you can operate it. Right. Which is, you know, what better way can you do it? All right, I got a trick for you. Let's pull a bunch of these things together. Book writing, magazines, writing code, and obsessive behavior. <laughs> to quote Paul Valery, the French poet, a poem is never finished, only abandoned. <laughs> right. So in the paraphrase, you're never done any of these things. It's just that you ran out of time on your writing contract, so you had to finish working on it. Oh, well, it's more like, you know, you ran out of time on your writing contract, so you had to start working on it. <laughs> oh, you mean it's due? I guess I should get started. I'll get right yeah. on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you're I, right. I mean, uh, like any creative work, you can always keep going. But um, part of the creative process is knowing, you know, the point of diminishing returns. And in fact, unless you're really, really careful, if you keep working on it, you're just going to ruin it. Yep. Actually, do damage in the end. Yes. You have to know when enough is enough. Yeah. Well, I've read plenty of books like that that could have been done in 100 pages, but were instead 400 pages. It's just that the 100 is right in the middle. Yeah. More often, the publishers push back on that, saying, no, it's not big enough. I've had that happen. Oh, I never... <laughs> I've, yeah, you I've have the opposite problem. I'm kind of... I have tend to be... Uh, I have a trouble with being wordy, and I have very few publishers saying right. it really needs to be. 
It just feels like a B. Can you heft yeah. it up and add some charts? <laughs> right? That doesn't happen. No, this, yeah, I think it more the question comes along the line of, I'm sorry, we don't have a binding machine big enough for <laughs> That's this. Right. And I don't want to make two volumes. Yeah, I've heard, I've actually heard uh, uh, of, I haven't run into that particular problem, thank God, but I have heard of authors that do. And in fact, I had an author tell me that the other day, that they have to move to a binding and they have to keep their book to under 1,800 pages. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, if you're at 1,800 pages, you should just embrace it. You, <laughs> you just keep going, baby. <laughs> Well, let me wrap it up with this question to Don. So, Don, I know that we've had, uh, we haven't played in a long time because of whatever reasons, you know, legal reasons we can't parody songs or whatever mm-hmm. and get away with it. But would you be interested in uh, getting the band back together if, if I were to say maybe hook up with Ted and, and write some original music? Um, that I'm was... always happy to play with Ted and you. Good, good. Well, I'll keep that in mind. Maybe we could even do it over the, you know, over the internet by trading wave files and things. Oh, yes. That would give me a reason to go buy Pro Tools. All right. Virtual band. We could do the virtual band. Well, yeah, we could do that. that there is fun. hope. There is hope for band on the runtime. We will we will rise again. I look forward to it. All right. Uh any last minute shout outs you guys want to give to anybody? Thank yous or or anything of the kind? Buy Charles Petzold's book. <laughs> you mean the one that's uh, in competition with Chris Sell's book? And Chris Anderson's and book. And Chris Anderson's book. I think everyone should buy every copy of those and come to their own conclusions. Well, okay. Read them all. You should not believe all this crap you read in the blogosphere about all these books. What you should do is buy yourself a copy of all four and form your own conclusions. That's exactly what you should do. So everything we just said about books being irrelevant, just ignore that and go buy these books. <laughs> well, look, you know, WPF, the technology, um, it takes four books to actually understand it. So, I see. <laughs> is that right, Chris? Oh, I would uh, – <laughs> no, it only takes one. The question is, which one? Yes, yes. Which one is the big question? All right, guys, we got to get Great. out of here. Thanks. Uh, thanks a lot for uh, for hanging out with us for an hour, and uh, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Quap Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.